as I started earning more, we were both excited more because I think I felt more confident in my earning power. Welcome to the Smart Money Mama Show, where moms get real about money to help you find your financial confidence and live your best life. Now let's talk money, mamas. Hey there, I'm your host, Chelsea Brennan. And mamas, today on the show, we're talking to Sarah Lee Kane. Sarah is a finance writer and host of the podcast, Beyond the Dollar. I love her approach to personal finance, blending practical tips and mindset strategies so that people can change their financial life and see themselves in the starring role. But today, we're talking about one of Sarah and Mai's favorite topics, breadwinning moms. We're going to discuss why there are still taboos about breadwinning moms, how Sarah's career grew to take her from teacher to stay-at-home mom to breadwinner, and why she wants more moms to feel confident becoming and being a breadwinner at home. As always, stick around until the end of the show to hear my top three takeaways from this conversation with Sarah, or you can head over to the show notes at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, for the complete show notes. Are you ready, mamas? Let's get started. Hey, Sarah, how are you? I'm good. I'm so excited to be on talking about this topic today. I think this is both of our favorite topics. So tell me, what do you want to break down? I just want to get rid of that taboo of talking about women who are breadwinners and also breadwinning moms. So I'm just, I just want to talk about it. Before we got on this podcast, I was looking up that tweet. So CNBC wrote that article about how women are, millennial women are ashamed of making more than their husbands. And then somebody retweeted it with the, no, we're not, please pay us more. And I realized that that tweet was over a year and a half ago. And I still think about it on a regular basis. It's a huge barrier. There's this thought about working moms that the majority, I think, of the culture assumes that working moms do it because they have to and never because they want to. What's your experience in your house? Oh, thank you for saying that because it's so true. How my kind of breadwinning journey started was actually before I even got pregnant. When my husband and I got married and we were discussing whether or not we wanted children, I made it very clear that if we were to have kids that I still wanted to work in some capacity. For me, I want to know that I can earn my own money. At that point, I'm like, you know, it doesn't really matter if I'm earning more than my husband, but I want to be able to contribute financially. That's just really how I felt because you never know what happens, right? Maybe you're in a great marriage, everything's great, but what if your partner passes away, is on disability? You know, there's all these kind of scenarios, right? I knew that going into motherhood or before that, that I wanted to make sure that I was able to work in some capacity. How I started freelance writing was really funny. I was actually bored one day and I was like, <laughs> yeah, I was like, I'm the tired best of- things come from I'm <laughs> bored right now. I was like, I'm tired of scrolling through Pinterest. Let me just do this. And it quickly became like a pretty decent side hustle. I remember, so we were both living in China. I'm Canadian. My husband's American. After my son was born, I was trying to decide what I really wanted to do. We're both teachers. I really enjoyed it. But I knew that the process of moving to a new country, I wasn't quite sure how that was going to work with my teaching license. And so I thought, okay, let me just make sure I can pay the rent with freelance writing and then we can make that transition. So the 
whole concept of me being the primary caretaker, me being a stay-at-home mom at that point was really out of necessity. And it just made more sense for me to do it because I was dealing with immigration stuff in, in terms of like making sure I got my green card, all my paperwork's in order. My husband already had his teaching license. It was just easier for him logically to do that. I just remember staying at home. I enjoyed it, but I also really just miss that work environment, being able to collaborate with people. And I'm also very, very type A, which I suppose it's very typical of breadwinning moms. So I wasn't happy with what I was making, not because I was like competitive, but just because I knew that I could do more. Again, my identity is also tied into work, not just being a mom. And so I just kept really looking for ways to increase my income, maximize my time. And then slowly, I think within like, I'd say a year, I ended up earning probably almost three times as much as my husband currently makes. Oh my God. Yeah. Like I I know it sounds like, Hey, that doesn't happen out of thin air. It it doesn't, obviously it doesn't. But my focus at that point was keep my sanity. My son was home with me for the majority of the time. Number two, I just want to be able to like make a bit more. I think at that point, I don't really a bit more three X what my husband makes a little bit more than what I was making. I think I, I was making enough to like pay the rent, but obviously not much that much more than that. And I think number three, I just wanted to be able to like have an identity outside of just motherhood at that point. It was a huge transition for me. Number one, I was moving to a new country. Number two, I quit my teaching job. Number three, I was a new mom. So it was like a lot of these things. And I wanted to make sure I had some sort of identity outside of just being a mom and staying at home. And so anyway, so became a breadwinning mom. And my husband obviously loves it. (laughs) He just, he thinks it's great. And our relationship, I think, has really shifted to the point where we actually talk a lot more about money. Not that we didn't before, but because of this increased income and I would almost say like need for more childcare because I want, I need more time to do work, like kind of little life things that money has almost had a really positive impact in a relationship. I want to talk more about your relationship, but I actually want to go back a second to your comments about security and wanting to earn your own money. And this is actually, for me, what worries me about a narrative of the ideal mom being this stay-at-home mom, right, is that we don't talk about the risks of that. And if I think that if moms want that lifestyle, that's amazing and they should do that, but they should also think about like, do you have a post-nuptial agreement if your relationship goes the wrong way? What's going to happen? Do you have the right life insurance if your spouse does pass away or disability insurance if they get sick? And we don't cover that at all. And I think it puts women at this horrible risk, right, of being really, really stuck. I'm curious of your thoughts on that. And like, if you have friends in your life that are stay-at-home moms, have you ever brought this type of stuff up with them and had conversations? Because you you are a finance writer. I do want to add like estate planning is so crucial. Yes, it's great to have life insurance and disability insurance, all of those things. And let's say you are your beneficiary to your husband's or partner's Uh, life insurance policies. But what if they have assets that are just in their name? They're not in your name. And so what happens? I'm not a a estate planning attorney, just big caveat here. But what can happen is when your husband or your partner passes away, their assets go through what's called a probate. And so that's when the law kind of determines how their assets are going to be divided. Sure, you may have shared bank accounts, shared this and that, but if there are certain assets that are not yours, you might have to wait a while before you can access them. And so that can put you in a predicament depending on what those assets are. Yeah. So we talk about estate planning a lot here. It's a very common topic. The other thing too to consider with probate is that different states have different rules. So often if they have an account that's just in their name, 
you might get part of it as their spouse, but your kids might also get named as part of it. And then none of you will be able to access it until your kids turn 18. It gets very complicated and expensive and drawn out. And actually the next level we talk about, and this is breadwinning moms, this is all families. We have a family emergency binder that kind of like walks through, how do you pay the bills? What do you do with the life insurance money? Who do you call for help? And who do you avoid? The kind of things that like your will is great. It tells your assets where to go. Life insurance is great. But if you don't know what to do with it, there's so much day-to-day that goes into life. We're on a tangent here, but I think that like that kind of planning, we just don't talk about enough. Agree. And just going back to your original question about have I talked to other stay-at-home moms or kind of what to consider, I do have a few friends who are stay-at-home moms. And I don't explicitly bring it up because it's one of, again, money is still one of the last taboos. I don't want to be like, hey, what are you doing for your life insurance policy? What do you, you know, like, I don't want to just bombard them, right? I do talk about the life stuff, like for a bunch of my friends who are stay-at-home moms and who are considering going back to work, I talk a lot about marketable skills. Are you doing something right now? Are you keeping in touch with your former boss or networking in a professional kind of manner? So things like that, because being a stay-at-home mom is great. Like if you're choosing that, awesome. I'm sure your kids appreciate it. I do think it's important to be able to have some way of earning income, even though that's what you're not choosing to do right now. Because again, you just never know. It's also really helpful to have an identity outside of being a mom. I think that's really, really important. I do know someone who raised six kids, great mom, really close to her husband and all her kids. But when her last kid basically just left for college, she felt very, I don't want to say empty, but it was a very big transition for her because for most of her life or adult life, she was raising these six kids. And so for her, like finding hobbies or things outside the home was, a she struggled a lot. Even those things, because you never know what can turn into a income source or a really meaningful thing that, that you do. Like luckily for me, what I do has both meaning and intrinsic value in terms of like earning income for myself. Yeah. We talk about that a lot with side hustles when moms are like, do you think it's worth it for me to take the time to try this? And it's like, well, yeah, like think about the skill you're building, the resume building. But to go back to the breadwinning side for a second, you guys were both teachers. So you must have had fairly similar incomes when you got married, correct? Yes. He earned a little bit more just because he had more teaching experience. So for, I would say the first half of our marriage, he was he was a breadwinner. Was there any shift as you started to make more money than him? You said he loves it, but did you guys talk about it at all? Was there uncomfortable family conversations? When I first started freelance writing full-time, so that's my main gig. When I first started doing that full-time, I felt a lot of shame about what I was earning because, again, I'm very type A. I pride myself on being able to earn income for myself. And so when I first started out, I wasn't making nearly as much as I did as a teacher. And so there was a lot of shame. I remember my husband would just bring up casual conversation like, oh, how was work today? What was your monthly income? Like kind of like things like that, like we always talk about, right? But I would just shut him down because I was just so ashamed of it. Obviously, he didn't care. He doesn't care how much I make. That that really isn't the point of why he married me. It was more, why are you shutting me down from these conversations? And so I finally was like, we need to sit down and talk about why I don't want to share it. And I think he under he understood really the shame of not feeling like I'm earning enough. It has nothing to do with the fact that I don't want to share it with you. It's really just feelings I have to work through. I started doing it little bit by little bit where I'd be like, hey, today I got a client and they're paying me $1,000 or whatever the amount was. And so as I started earning more, I think we were both excited, 
more because I think I felt more confident in my earning power. So it wasn't really the number. It wasn't really the fact that I was becoming the breadwinner or am still now the breadwinner. It was more the fact that I was like owning the fact that I am an independent woman in a really wonderful relationship and that my partner is really excited for me. So that's really what it ultimately is. And so, I mean, he jokes about being a I'm being his sugar mama. Like he'll joke about things like that, but really it's more about, and he said this to me, like how excited and proud he is of me of being able to do this because I think both of us really want this flexible lifestyle to be able to travel, to raise our kids without having to go to a nine to five. If we don't want to, we're that much closer to doing that. I love it. That's great. It's uh, it's interesting people's different experiences with it. And I think that there's a little bit of a difference when so my husband's a stay-at-home dad and i have some friends that also have in relationships where there's a stay-at-home dad and i feel like that's an extra level of social people want to comment on <laughs> but i think that people don't know how much you both make so there's probably not as much social commentary about your situation it's funny you say that so teachers i would say generally depending on where you're from generally know what each other makes because there is kind of a scale and so i think in my area most teachers know what each other makes just based on the number of experience you have and what you teach. So it's really funny because I think I, I don't know why, and maybe this is a society thing. I used to get really like almost embarrassed or shy about the fact that I was a breadwinner. Not that it would come up on an occasion where you just declare it. Right. But it was something I never really made a point to say, but whenever conversations would come up, my husband would be like, yeah, like my wife makes three times more than I do. When that happens, people kind of can make the assumption like, Oh, like if my, if, my husband makes this, then Sarah obviously makes this amount. Or Interesting. A, yeah. It turns into a really interesting conversation afterwards because then they're really interested in like what I do, how I do it, how I've been able to increase my income to that amount. Some people get really uncomfortable and then that conversation changes. It's either one or the other in terms of reaction. So it's I'm always curious what happens when my, my husband does say something. That's really, really interesting. And it comes back to, there's some interesting statistics about for married heterosexual couples, about a quarter have a breadwinning woman now, as of 2019. In 1960, that was 6%, which is crazy <laughs> and amazing. I love it. But there's also that second layer where there's separate studies that the number of women who will say that they are breadwinners, even when they are breadwinners, is much, much lower. And I'm curious to your thoughts of like, how can we get better at owning this? Like you, you said you got more proud as you earned more money. How do we own that, that earning power? For me personally, I think it was difficult because our family members are a little bit more traditional in that sense. I don't think we really grew up talking about the fact that women could be breadwinners and whether or not that was something that was explicitly taught to us or told to us. I think most of my relatives, whenever like the women anyways, whenever they found out they were pregnant, they were they would just quit their jobs or they would postpone their careers, I guess you can say, until their children were older. And so I think for a lot of my relatives, that was the expectation. We're like, oh, well, you're moving to a new country and you have this young kid. Oh, I guess you're just going to stay at home. I didn't know how to bring up that conversation. Like, no, I'm actually going to earn money and somehow I'm going to surpass my husband, obviously. Yeah. right? So for me, I think that's what it is. The number two thing I would say is almost like Talking about salaries in general is already a weird subject for many people. I think we have to get past that as well as the fact that women can be breadwinners. And I do think that we're starting to see, 
I mean, our generation talks about money way more <laughs> than previous generations, right? Uh, we're much more transparent about a lot of things. So we're starting to see more clarity, but there is that underlying expectation, whether it's coming from our parents or whatever, that men are still supposed to be the provider. And we see it in wage gaps all the time, right? Of like, there's the fatherhood bonus and the motherhood penalty as soon as you have kids. For women who are kind of on that edge or they really want to grow their business to the next level, but are feeling a little bit held back of like, well, I don't know how my husband will react or whatever. What advice do you have for them to like to start to do the thought experiment of why they're why they're feeling stuck? This is something I've gone through, and I think a few other moms I know who work from home do too, is that what is your primary reason for working for yourself? Is it really so you can be home with your kids or is it so you can have that flexible lifestyle? And it's like a really subtle like wording if you think about it. And I'm generalizing here. Like I think a lot of moms get caught between that like, oh, I'm staying at home for the kids versus it's a flexible lifestyle. Like the bonus is being there for the kids and doing something that's just as meaningful as my former career, whatever it is. I got caught in that where like, I'm quitting for my kid. I'm going to spend all my time with him. Like he comes first and then my work comes second. I think that's where that conflict lay for me because again, I'm such a type A person and I almost felt like resentful in a way towards the fact that I felt like I had to play this role. Whereas I can, I can have both. It doesn't mean I had, can have like, you know, be a great mom and spend all my time with him and, you know, earn a gazillion dollars. Like you can't obviously have all of it at the same time, but there's a version of it that you can have that can be both. Right. And so as soon as I made that shift to like, I can want this for myself as well. That's when I noticed that I was able to make decisions based on income, having a more flexible lifestyle and being able to be there and earn more, have a better career in terms of like feeling better about it. For moms who are struggling, I would almost encourage you to just think about that. Are you feeling like I'm telling people this narrative of like, I am staying home for my kids because that's something that people mostly perceive or it's something that you think you should be saying? Or can it be, I want to do this for myself too. Like I am an individual outside of being a mom, being a wife, being a sister, daughter, whatever role. I am myself as well. I want this for myself. I think that comes for career moms a little bit too, right? Where you get that feeling and we come back to that kind of narrative that you work because you have to, not ever because you want to. And I think sometimes we hear from people that are like, well, if I go after that big promotion or I make a big career change, I'm going to have to work more. And then maybe people will feel like I'm prioritizing my work over my kids. And like, so we kind of stay out of it, both from our own guilt and from fear of judgment. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That wasn't a question. I was like, yes, I wholeheartedly agree. And it's almost as like internalized judgment too, because of all these messages received. And I'm still working through this. Like I'm not perfect at this, but I'm still working through the fact that I have these internal messages of like, is it okay to want this for myself? Is it okay to even like double my income and be okay with that? That is a question I keep asking myself. And I don't know if I have the right answers for that yet. And I absolutely love your juxtaposition of like, are you are you home to be with the kids and then your work is secondary or is it reverse? And it's like I said, my husband's a stay-at-home dad. My mom in like especially year one and year two of doing this full time, she'd be like, you're still working just as much as you were before. Like, wasn't the point of this to spend more time with the kids? Like, you should work less. And I was like, well, no, it was to have a more flexible life, but I still have to earn money and grow this business. And like that has to work especially because we don't have another income. 
that was like another form of like a little bit of judgment that people, when I shifted to working from home, even though I was still the sole income earner, expected me to put that second to being around the kids. As you've earned more money, you said you've kind of, you've gotten more help with childcare and things like that. How has childcare and housework shifted for your family since you started earning so much more? Childcare still mostly rests on me just because my son is younger. And if there's an emergency, I'm usually the one that can probably go to the school or daycare a lot quicker than my husband does. That's sort of something we've already discussed. And I'm okay with that because my son is, I guess, before the pandemic was going to preschool half days. So it was like, okay, well, clearly Sarah has a flexible schedule. She can drop him off, pick him up, all those things. And so that to me is fine. I work my work schedule around that. So that's not a big deal. In terms of housework, we divide it fairly equally. I think since my husband's working from home now a lot more, he has done more of the work just because he he knows that like if I have deadlines I need to work with or like podcast interviews or things like that, he'll just be like, oh, well, okay, the clothes need washing. Let me just throw it in the laundry. It's shifted. It might shift again. It really depends on, I think, what's going on in our lives, but I think we, we do it pretty equally. Which is great. I think that there's also the statistics around breadwinning moms being slightly less happy than stay-at-home moms, which always comes by in the headlines of like, breadwinning moms are miserable. And then you look at the stats and it's like, okay, 69% of stay-at-home moms say they're happy and 66% of breadwinning moms. You're like, okay, guys, like we're really splitting hairs here. But part of that comes down to housework and childcare, right? And so while breadwinning fathers often say their wives do more of the childcare and housework, breadwinning moms are still doing most of the childcare and housework. And that's really hard to balance. Yes. And it's also another question of, is it based on the shoulds, right? Is it based on the messages that we're getting? I think when I first started out earning my husband, I was still doing most of the housework just again, because I was one staying at home mostly with my son. And it just, I'm like, it makes more sense. Like he doesn't have as flexible work schedule. Obviously I changed that once my work got a little bit more. It really had to do with me getting over the fact that like, just because someone's in an office and they have less time at home, doesn't mean that they can't contribute in an equal or more meaningful way to housework or childcare. It required a lot of conversations. I guess it depends on the relationship too and the, and the communication styles, but it really kind of boils down to like, what are your boundaries? What do you want from that partner? How can you communicate it in a way that they understand? Can you allow for some grace for that? Because just because you say something and you both agree to it doesn't mean it's going to happen right away. It could just be a lot of stumbling blocks and figure out what works and what doesn't as well. Absolutely. That makes sense. And I want to talk a little bit more about all the things moms are expected to do at home and with their kids. But before we do that, I want to take a quick pause to hear from our incredible partners who help make the Smart Money Mama show possible. Today's podcast is brought to you by Policy Genius. Mamas, we need to make sure our families are financially prepared for emergencies. That's why we created the Family Emergency Binder. But every parent also needs life insurance to provide for their partner or kids if they were no longer around. At Policy Genius, you can get quotes on quality, affordable term life insurance policies from multiple trusted providers in just minutes. And if you're healthy, you could qualify for a Bright House Simply Select policy, which offers all the benefits and great prices of term life insurance, but without the pesky in-person health checks or lab work. 
Head to policygenius.com forward slash smart money mamas to apply for your life insurance policy today and make sure your family is supported no matter what. Did you happen to see that viral article that happened a few months ago about the Silicon Valley CEO, female CEO that posted a job offer <laughs> for someone to like research summer camps for kids and meal plan and pick up and people were outraged, outraged about this. What were your thoughts? Hey, if she's going to pay that person good money, like why not? Wouldn't you want somebody to run your household like that way? I certainly would. <laughs> And she was paying well. I can't remember what the hourly was exactly, but it was a job she was paying really well for. It was a full-time job. And it was interesting to see the split in the response. But most people were like, she's asking someone to parent her kids. Even though almost none of the things were like one-on-one time with the kids. It was like all the emotional labor, mental work that goes on. And like, we need to break the expectation that mom has to do that or she's not parenting. Yeah, there's another article by Denise Duffield-Thomas. I think she posted on Medium. It's called, uh, I'm a self-made millionaire and this is all the help that I get. She basically in the article outlines like, I have three nannies for my three kids. I have a house cleaner. My mom comes every once in a while to help. I think they're her and her husband are building a house on the beach. And she's like, I've deferred all my decisions to him because I know what he, or he knows what I like. Well, good for you for owning that. I remember she was questioned by someone about, oh, like, don't you want your children to be able to see that you're doing housework, like just to know that they should be doing that when, you know, they're older or being able to do their own work, right? And she's like, well, is my child going to see me do laundry when she's two? <laughs> like, is that is that really something I need to worry about right now? And it was, I'm like, great comeback. Like, I was like, yes, that's true. Yes, your children observe things, but does not doing the laundry mean that you're less of a mom or that your kid's going to be screwed up when they're older? My son sees me in my home office working and he'll come in and be like, oh, mom's working. And I said, yes, come back in 10 minutes. And so he'll go. He obviously sees me doing something, right? Whether or not he clues into the fact that it's for money, I don't know, right? But it's fine. He sees my husband doing laundry. He helps and he sees me fold the laundry every once in a while. So it's not like just because you're not doing certain housework things doesn't mean, I don't want to say it doesn't mean anything, but it doesn't mean that your child's going to perceive anything differently. It doesn't mean that you're any less of a person or a woman or a mom, whoever, just because you're not doing that. Again, these are roles that I think people think that they're assigned, but if somebody wants to come in and clean my house and do laundry, I'm not going to say no. And I also think there's a flip side too of like, maybe it's good for our kids and especially our boys to see dad helping out with the laundry and mom honoring her time and asking for help and hiring. Like, I actually think those are positive narratives as well. Not that your kids are going to be like, well, I just never do laundry. There are ways to make that a really interesting thing. And this is a little separate from breadwinning moms, but your comment about Denise Duffield Thomas brings up a little bit about wealth gaps for sure. And when we think about like, you see those narratives of everyone has the same 24 hours in the day. It's like, well, no, (laughs) billionaires and millionaires have all this help. They can afford all this help. And that if we're going to compare ourselves to those people, sometimes we have to invest in ourselves and ask for some help and get somebody to come help with the laundry. I would love someone to do our laundry. (laughs) I hate doing the laundry. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So besides childcare, do you guys hire anything out? For now, no. I think we're doing home renovations, so stuff like that. We're it can cost more, but I'm like, do I really want to deal with it? It's not like it's going to be a big dent in our budget. Like we we're saving up for it, so things like that. I used to be like, I'm a DIY person all the way for everything, and I'm talking about like housework, home improvements, everything. Now I'm like, okay, what's the value that I'm going to get from it? 
I need to think of it that way. And then going back to the the mom who's a CEO and hiring out this stuff, like if she has a really demanding work schedule and you think about it, what's more important, like doing the laundry yourself or spending time with your kid? I would pay for someone to do my laundry if that were the case. You also talk a lot about mindset stuff, right? It's interesting to hear you say like you used to be a DIYer and now you think about the value. And I think that that's a development that a lot of people go through, right? Of like they start in a frugality place and they have to earn enough and save enough to give themselves permission to start to spend more. How did you make that change? Because I think a lot of people get, they struggle with spending money. That was actually mostly my husband's doing. I think <laughs> I I don't remember what particular story, but I would just remember occasions where I'd just be really frustrated doing something and he'd be like, you know, you could pay someone to do that. Or we could just buy a new one. Like he'll say something like, like, you can buy a new one. It's probably more cost effective to buy a new one. I'd be like, no, I need to fix this. Or, you know, whatever, whatever it was. Over time, I think, I don't know, either he wore me down or I just realized I'm like, you're right. And I, I remember it was funny. One particular story that kind of sticks out and it sort of has to do with cost and value is I get sciatica flare-ups every once in a while. I need really good footwear and really good insoles. And those are not cheap. I would cheap out on like cheap shoes, like flats, heels, running shoes, whatever's on sale at like my local discount department store. One time I had it just, I had the worst flare up. And my husband's like, let me buy you a pair of shoes. He's like, don't worry about the cost. Like you can say it came out of my paycheck. I don't care. Just let me buy you a pair of shoes. You tell me the color, I will buy it. So I'm like, fine. So he comes back with these shoes. It was more than what I would normally pay. And I freaked out. He's like, no, no, just just wear them. Wear them for a week. <laughs> wear them for a week and then see how you feel. My flirt went away within a few days. And I was like, oh. He's like, this is what happens when you pay more for something that will give you a lot of value. Like in, in that case was my health. Those were kind of little things that I was like, okay, like you're right. I can pay for like over $100 for a pair of shoes and it prevents these flare-ups. Great. <laughs> Yeah. It's amazing how often we miss those little things, right? Of our comfort and our help matters. And we can't just like cut every single expense for the goal of saving as much as possible if we're not healthy. <laughs> yeah. And I also want to say like, if let's say you are down on one income, depending on what that is, I think the, the default, and I know this is very common, definitely with me, the default is to scrimp and save as much as you can because of necessity, right? Like when we moved back to, or we moved to the US and I was not earning yeah, I was earning just enough to pay the rent. Like it was a lot of scrimping and saving because we were trying to figure out how to work mostly from my husband's paycheck, right? Which is fine. That's your default mode. And then as I started earning more, I was still in that default mode of like scrimping and saving. It was really hard for me to make that shift because I was used to it for so long that I couldn't give myself permission to like go to a fancier restaurant or like little things like that. I remember like debating over a box of like markers for like $5 because I couldn't bring myself to buy it. And it was like, I can buy this $5 pack of markers. It's okay. I don't have to script and save as much as I used to. That scarcity mode is really, really hard to break away from, especially because it's so rooted in fear and security, right? I mean, I've told this story in the podcast before. I had a colleague at the hedge fund I worked with, very senior woman who grew up with not a lot of money, and she still price compared toilet paper. And I was like, oh my gosh, you can afford all the toilet paper, just just buy toilet paper. But it it's internal work that we have to do as we earn more money, as we get more financially secure, for sure. Agreed. I want to talk about your freelancing a little bit because 
if anyone on this podcast listens to the you went from zero to three xing your husband's income and I don't talk about it, I'm going to get angry emails. <laughs> but I first want to just say for breadwinning moms, do you have anything to say to breadwinning moms that you want them to hear before we change subjects? I just want to say that whatever permission you think you need to get to talk about it or allow yourself to spend more money or embrace the fact that you you have this earning power, like this is your permission slip. It's not going to be easy to talk about it. I, again, like as evident, I'm evidence of it still hard to talk about, but lean into it. Even if you get weird stares, I think it's, we need to normalize it a lot more. So Sarah, when you say you're a freelance writer, you specialize in personal finance. How did that come about? Very much by accident. (laughs) (laughs) So back when I was bored and doing this, I didn't have my green card. I didn't have any social security. I couldn't really do anything in the U S. And so but I could still do stuff in Canadian companies. So I actually started leaning on industry experience as a elementary school teacher. And so I started writing for textbook companies. It was a lot of like kids books and even books to help like for test prep and things like that. So I was doing that. It was pretty good side hustle income. The downside to writing for textbook companies is that there are only certain times a year when they need you because of the publishing schedule. There'd be months where I wouldn't have anything, but during the time you still have to kind of hustle for contracts because you want to be on top of mind of these editors. I started getting a little bit tired of doing that. And I was like, well, you know, what can I do? And I remember writing a guest post about using PayPal. This was like from a friend's blog. And I was like, okay, cool. Let me just do this guest post. I, I, fine, I'll help you out. And then I started getting emails from people were like, hey, would you like to write about international finance? Based on this article that I wrote about PayPal, I was like, okay, cool. Like, why not? At this time, I got my green card. I got my social security number, all that. Then I had US companies reaching out as well, like smaller US-based blogs. And I thought, okay, maybe I make a go of this. Like, this is a little bit more regular than the textbook writing work. So I thought, okay, well, I have to learn about it anyways. I'm going to move to the US eventually. Why not? And so I just started pitching topics or reaching out to companies that I wanted to learn about or like on topics I wanted to learn about. So like, I want to learn about how banks work. Great. Let me pitch different kinds of blogs that wrote about banking products. I need to buy a house and figure out mortgages. Let me reach out to mortgage companies. And so that's really how that happened. I think this is a place where people get stuck, right? Where they think they need to be one, have a ton of writing experience and two, have a ton of knowledge about whatever they're writing about. But that doesn't sound like it was your experience. No. I will say it was really intimidating for me to even pitch to companies because I don't have a degree whatsoever related to finance. Like mine is an art degree and I in English literature. So like to me, nothing to do with finance. And I'm like, I'm Canadian. What do I know about the finance industry in the US? And so it was really, really intimidating. How I approached it was I'm really good at researching. I'm really good at working with an editor because I've, I've done textbook work. So why not just lean into that? Why not be able to say, okay, I may not have the industry knowledge, but if this requires a lot of research, I can do it. I started kind of, I think what people call like low hanging fruit. So kind of the lesser known blogs or clients that may not be known on a national level. And so I started with that. I'm like, okay, now I have something. And for people who are just, just starting out, you can even reach out to blogs and just guest post for free and get some experience that way. Once I got, let's say a couple of, this is for me, like I felt confident to pitch, let's say mortgage companies. I go, okay, well, I have three articles I wrote about buying a house. 
let me reach out to them. And then the next person I would go to, then I would start using names of clients. So it'd be like, oh, hey, I wrote for Bankrate. Let me go pitch LendingTree. Or I wrote for LendingTree. Let me pitch to Quicken Loans. Like some of these bigger companies or bigger names. I just built my reputation that way. And so now I people do come to me because they've seen my name in these big places. They're like, oh, well, if Sarah's writing for these really big companies and clearly she's really good. It happened slowly. Like I started freelance writing in 2012. So like that was eight years ago. Like, so it built slowly. I think started doing it full time. I already had a number of clients under my belt or a lot of enough experience under my belt that I felt a little bit more confident pitching. I think everything really snowballed then in, in the last few years. And how did you think about rates, especially as you were getting started? Did you pitch a number? Did you just pitch an idea and see what they came back with? Yeah. Oh gosh. Uh, yeah. That was like a, it's a really tricky one rates, I think still. I had a lot of friends who were also starting writing. And so they were like, oh, this is the rates that I would, that I have. And so I would just base my numbers off of that, which worked for a while. I would also, also approach clients be like, hey, what's your budget? And they would come back to me with a number. And now I think what I do, so a lot of my clients already have set rates, which is great. I can say yes or no. I can push back whatever. But one of the things that's really helped me raise my rates is talking to other people who are, I don't want to say on the same level, but who are earning the amount that you would like to earn or are in certain publications that you want to be in because you know that they have probably flexed their negotiation muscles a lot. I have a, a set number of really close freelance writing friends who are really open to be sharing rates and they'd be like, this is how much I get. And they'll come to me. And I'm very open with how much I, I earn with certain clients. Just very recently, two of my other friends um, and I were approached by the same company to write articles. And so we all actually discussed like what what would be a reasonable rate. And we were like, okay, well now now we're gonna we're gonna make sure that this is what we're gonna reply in terms of what our rate is. So I don't know if it's gonna work, but I've done this in the past and it has worked. Oh my gosh, pay transparency. <laughs> There's so many good things about page transparency. It's really difficult and it gets really uncomfortable. Like you almost have to really trust that person. And it does take time to build that trust with colleagues. But I will say in terms of freelance writing, there's lots of Facebook groups. There's lots of other, like you can even ask on Twitter if you want to like make an anonymous profile. It doesn't really matter, but you can even just put it out there. Be like, hey, this is a project that I'm working on. You don't have to say the name of the client. This is a project I'm working on. This is kind of like how much work it's going to involve. Like, what should I be asking about or what are some rates? There are lots of people who want to help you succeed because it helps them too, right? Because if your rates go up, their rates ultimately go up. And so you can start asking. Like, I am really fortunate and grateful that I do have these really close friends who I can ask for. But if I didn't, I would just start leading on these Facebook groups. I think Facebook groups are great. I did a little bit of freelancing when I first made the transition from my hedge fund job to this. I didn't have a lot of close friends, but there were definitely people I knew in the personal finance space that were writers and they were way more open than I would have expected to like just a Twitter DM of, hey, I'm thinking of pitching this company. I see you write for them, like any idea of what we should do. And I think that that like, one, building relationships is always a positive aspect of business and career. And then being willing to ask a little bit uncomfortable questions can mean you don't undersell yourself, especially in certain niches, because some niches pay a lot less than others. And if you're coming from one to another, you might really undersell yourself. Exactly. And if you're uncomfortable with talking about that, think about how a lot of stay-at-home moms talk about like 
deals that they get at Aldi or like the discount supermarket, right? You're talking about money then. It's just like a different type of conversation now. Instead of talking about like couponing and saving money, you're talking about how much more can I earn if I talk about the rates? It's really funny to me. It's always really funny to me what mom friends will talk about and then that money is uncomfortable. Like the fact that we've all told birth stories, like <laughs> like graphic birth stories. And then we're like, oh no, we can't talk about how much you get paid for that freelance article. Well, not not our communities, obviously, but that taboo is is so deep. And I, I like the juxtaposition of like, okay, would you talk about getting that shirt on sale or how you saved on groceries? Like this is just another layer of that. That's a really good piece of advice. Guest posting would be your number one recommendation to start to build a, a portfolio. Yeah. And I wouldn't even discount anything that you've done in your nine to five. So I know a lot of moms who work from home now, they have written things for their previous company. You can use that. I mean, obviously ask, your, ask permission from your employer or former employer as well. I know a lot of women who are technical writers and now they're using those as pieces of their portfolio or they wrote stuff for PR, like things like that. Like anything that you think that you can use as a piece of writing, you probably can, except for maybe like an article from your high school newspaper, right? But most things, if there's an editor and it's being published in a professional way or out in the public, you can probably use. You can even reach out to like nonprofits. A lot of them are always looking for volunteer writers. You can even volunteer to write one or two pieces and then ask for testimonial, ask them if you can use this piece in your writing portfolio and use it that way. So you're helping a great cause and you're also helping your portfolio or build your portfolio as well. I like that. That's great. What's your favorite part of this career that you've built? That I can take a day off if I want to, like anytime. Like, so in June, I think I took about Okay, I had to work up to this. I just want to like be clear. I work. I had to work up to this as I took two weeks off in June and I earned the same amount of income that I did working four weeks in May. There were some 12-hour days, I'm not going to lie. I'd be very clear with my husband, but like, listen, if you want to take these two weeks off and spend time together, I got to work some 12-hour days. But I had the option to even do that, which is amazing, right? And again, it takes time to work up to it. I think when you're first starting out, it might not it might not be possible. I'm not saying it's impossible. I think when you're trying to ramp up your clients, it might be a little bit difficult. But for me, I'm in a really fortunate position now where I'm like, okay, if I want to make sure I have, let's say, all of August off, like I can do it. I just have to make sure that I am prepping like what I need to prep. I need to make it clear with my clients. I just I need to create those boundaries for myself so I will stick to it. But that has been my favorite. Yeah. That's amazing. And I think setting those boundaries with clients and having that reputation with clients also helps build that space, right? I think early on, at least for me, I don't know if it happened in your career, in your freelance career too, but I would take those jobs that when an editor sent out, like, I need this in the next 48 hours, can someone jump on it to build a relationship and then be able to say like, hey, I can't really do those anymore. Like, what do you want for me for for next month? And you start to make that transition. But it is, there's always that hustle at the beginning, I think. Yes, yes. And I think lately with all the recent events, Something that I've done, and it's not for everyone, something I've done is I used to charge rush fees. So then, so rush fees mean that if a client wants something turned around in 24 to 48 hours or within a few days, I charge a little kind of extra percentage. So I stopped doing that because I know that clients might need stuff really quickly or their messaging needs to change, number of reasons. And so I've stopped charging that for the time being. I've been a lot faster with edits 
again, it's a keeping me top of mind. Like I don't have to do it. I'm not saying you have to do it or anybody does. It's just something that like little things you can do. If you can do that to make your editors or your clients life that much easier, they're going to remember you. And so when you do take time off, you're still going to be remembered, especially when you come back and be like, okay, now give me all the things like I'll do it. (laughs) That is an excellent piece of advice. Sarah, as we wrap up here, any last pieces of advice for people that are just starting freelancing? I would say don't overthink it. I think that we feel like we have to have all the things. I started out with a LinkedIn profile and a Gmail, like a separate Gmail account. And so now I have my website, I have a you know my own professional email address and things like that. But start basically, like what's the most important thing you need for a freelance writing business is clients, right? Like how do you get clients? You email them, you call them, you mail them, whatever it is you want to do to like make sure you have a conversation with a client and then they pay you rinse and repeat, right? So don't worry about kind of like the shiny things, just worry about the bare basic stuff and then you can build it up as you go. Awesome. Perfect. And guys, LinkedIn and Gmail (laughs) and sending emails is all free. (laughs) So you can start and definitely build up. All right, Sarah, our last thing before we let you go is we have to have you try on our Smart Money Mama's sorting hat. So the sorting hat is our version of the hot seat where we ask the magical hat to reveal something about you. It contains a number of questions about money, motherhood, and life. Are you ready? All right. What is your favorite thing to do with your child? Having a dance party. Ooh, dance parties are so fun. Does he have a favorite song? Anything with a rhythm. Like I've started playing these little rap songs for kids and he's very into that. So that's what we do. That's super fun. Henry, my oldest, when he was younger, went through a phase where he loved Thank God I'm a Country Boy. And he could sing the whole thing. He was like two and a half. It was so funny. (laughs) So funny. I love those dance parties. Sarah, where can people find out more about you, listen to your podcast and follow up on your work? Sure. So if you want to check out my writing, you can just search my name, Sarah Lee Kane. I'm in most of the major personal finance outlets. I also run a podcast called Beyond the Dollar. So that's at beyondthedollar.co. And the premise of that show is really major life events or transitions through the lens of money. Some recent guests have come on. I had a single mom on and she was talking about medical debt and how she dealt with that. I had a mom dealing with some birth complications and medical insurance, kind of all, like things like that and how my guests have worked through it. That's amazing. It's a really great show, guys. You should definitely check out Beyond the Dollar. And Sarah will be talking at the Mama's Talk Money Summit in October. So you guys will see her again soon. Yay. I'm excited for that too. I can't wait. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you soon. All right. Thanks. Mamas, I love Sarah's story and her ownership of her breadwinner role, especially because she took a non-traditional path to it. When we do talk about breadwinning moms in the media, which isn't often, we hear about women in tech or finance, like women like I used to be, that have huge traditional careers and incomes. Sarah went from teacher to stay-at-home mom to part-time freelancer before building her business and ultimately 3Xing her husband's income. Such an inspiration, both as evidence of our abilities to make money from home and on our schedule, and as proof that if you're willing to put in the work, you can grow your income even starting from zero. As always, I've rounded up my top three favorite takeaways from this conversation with Sarah to bring into your own breadwinner or future breadwinner life. First, if you have a partner, keep open communication about money and home management. Everyone's experience of being a breadwinning mom is going to look different. Some partners, like Sarah's husband and my own, will celebrate it and be constant supporters. Some, they're going to struggle with it. Social norms about who, quote unquote, should earn more 
are alive and well in our society, and many of us have internalized them. Whether you have always had an income disparity or it's new, keep talking. Make sure you are aware of how you both feel addressing any concerns and that you are asking for the support you need, whether it's encouragement of your goals or help around the house or with childcare. If you and your spouse both work, I would check out episode 30 with Jennifer Petroglieri on three powerful transitions that challenge working couples to make sure both of your careers are being taken care of. And if you're growing a business like Sarah or trying to go back to work or get a promotion, needs will change. For a while, Sarah could keep her son with her, but as her business grew, she needed help with childcare and she and her husband decided to put him in half-day preschool. Be flexible. Keep talking. Second, if you're interested in freelance writing, just get started. Sarah didn't start as a professional personal finance writer. She didn't even start as a professional writer. Instead, she used her teaching background to land a few gigs with textbook companies and educational platforms. Then she found a topic that interested her, personal finance, and she pivoted. Freelance writing is one of those things that is interesting to many people, especially as the pay can be great in certain niches. But I often hear, well, I'm not a writer. I'm not an expert in the topic. I don't know how to get clients. If you're interested, just dive in. You won't know if it's for you until you get started. Like Sarah said, pitch some smaller blogs first, start your own blog and write a few articles. Then as you build a portfolio, pitch bigger and bigger companies, join communities of freelancers in your desired niche. I promise they exist. Just search in Facebook and ask for feedback and advice. Do your research on your topics and learn from each and every assignment. Who knows? You could build a whole career. And if you do want a little handholding, I'm a huge fan of Holly Porter Johnson's Earn More Writing course. I'll drop a link in the show notes for you. And finally, third, own your earnings power and success. Breadwinning moms are more common than ever before, including single moms. 40% of U.S. families have a breadwinning mama. Yet we still have this automatic assumption that men make more money, and it pervades workspaces and hiring, expectations of who is taking care of what at home, and so much more. And breadwinning women often internalize that and worry about what people will think if they out-earn their spouse. So they diminish their own accomplishments. In almost one-third of heterosexual married couples, the woman makes more, almost one-third. Yet, if you talk to those women, only 38% of them will identify themselves as the breadwinner when asked. The only way we can start to change the narrative to start normalizing breadwinning women is by talking about it, by celebrating it. Your skill sets are amazing. Your ambition is amazing. You are amazing. Revel in it. You've got this. I want to thank Sarah again for joining me on the show and talking about her breadwinning mama journey and sharing how she built her incredible freelance business. Be sure to check out her website and podcast at Beyond the Dollar, which we have links to in the show notes at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Sarah, S-A-R-A-H. Mama, thank you for hanging out with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, tag me at Smart Money Mamas on Instagram stories and tell me your thoughts. Keep talking money, mamas. I'll see you next time.